Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, 20 minutes that simplifies the complex job of managing and leading people and inspires you to take action on what you probably already know to build and sustain a smart and healthy business. Here's your host, Ed Epley, to introduce this week's guest and business leader. Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, the podcast designed to simplify the complex job of managing and leading people. And our goal today, like on every podcast, is to share at least one proven business practice that will help you build a more sustainable, profitable, and purpose-driven company. Uh, Behind the scenes today, as always, is our good friend, Sean Hedinger, and he's going to take care of all the production. So if this doesn't sound very good, we're going to blame him. Our guest today, the characteristics I see in him, in no particular order, high energy. Man alive, does he have high energy. He's got a thirst for learning. I'm not going to ask him how old he is when we talk, but you're going to hear about, I think he's still learning at a very high rate. He is highly influential, and by that, he's got to be a highly effective leader. I have no doubts about that, and I've gotten confirmation from some people I respect that he has that capacity. He's really friendly. If you were to meet this guy uh, on the airplane or in a restaurant, he would become genuinely interested in you in a very short period of time, and you'd, you'd want to talk to him. He's entertaining. And I think he's a high school basketball addict. I may be wrong about that, but I think deep down inside, he's, he's pretty addicted to high school basketball. His name is Dr. Jim Mahoney. Jim, welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. Hey, Ed, I'm glad to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Well, you come highly recommended from Dr. Bobby Moore, our, our good mutual friend. And I was going to have Bobby on my podcast. He said, if you're going to have me on, you got to have on Jim Mahoney before me. So that's why we're having this conversation today. <laughs> um, tell, tell our audience, how did a kid from uh, Southeastern Ohio get to be the executive director of Battelle for Kids, which is arguably one of the top, what, two or three institutions in the United States for improving the way kids learn? Very fortunate. Very, very fortunate. I went to a small high school, but I had great teachers, came to Ohio State and got a great education there. And after I got out of the Army, I was an Army officer. I taught school in the 70s in southeastern Ohio and then moved to another part of southeastern Ohio, Muskingum County, where I served as a principal and assistant and then superintendent for 15 years. During that time, got to do lots of different things, work with Many, many wonderful people. And then I got a call from a consultant saying that Patel was going to start this new not-for-profit. And it was my privilege to be the founding executive director and to work there for 15 years before I went on to my current position at Ohio University on the faculty. So very blessed. This journey is, is obviously got fits and starts to it, right? Starts and stops to it. When did you actually decide you wanted to go into education? You were in the military, but that, I mean, what, what was that move about? How did that come about? Did, was, that a, was that a moment or was that just a series of things that build up over time? You know, I, it's a great question, Ed, and I'll tell you why, because I've often wondered about that because I was in the army and I had the opportunity, this is right as Vietnam was ending, and to have an early release or to have a regular army appointment, which would have extended my time. I called Ohio State because while I had a degree in education, I hadn't student taught, I didn't have a certificate. And they said, if I wanted to come back that very next quarter, they'd get me into student teach. And that's when I knew I wanted, but I can't say I know exactly what it was before that. And then when I did that, and then I got my first job at this 
wonderful little school along the Little Muskingum River. I used to tell people, you can't, you couldn't have taught anywhere in Ohio and made less money than what I did. I found my calling there. Uh, I used to think, gosh, I don't make any money, but <laughs> who would pay me to have this much fun? I had the most supportive parents in the world at a little K-8 school. It, I taught grades five through eight, and I only taught a couple things I was actually certified to teach. Were you married at the time you made this career shift? No, no. And it became, that became my marriage because I had nothing else to do except invest my time. And I found that it was a labor of love. I, I'll give you an aside, just a quick, quick little aside, Ed. Please. Because Please. if someone were to ask me, what was the best experience I ever had in education? It was the combination of teaching there. And I got to tell you what happened is the first group of kids I ever had, most of the day were sixth graders. There were 25 of them. And then the next year, now in this little, this little school, there was one teacher per grade level. So the next year, the seventh grade teacher left. So I went to the seventh grade with them. And then, yep, you know, the next year, the eighth grade teacher left, and I went to the eighth grade with them. So my first three years of teaching, I had the same group of kids. We were doing <laughs> looping before they called it looping. And uh, <laughs> we buried this time capsule uh, to celebrate the bicentennial. You're old enough to remember the bicentennial. Oh, oh yeah. Not. But uh, yeah. <laughs> we buried this time capsule with lots of things in it with the idea that somebody would dig it up in 100 years, and it would – Guess what was our culture like circa 1976? Well, somebody had the idea in the class, well, why don't we dig it up? I remember teasing those kids. Well, when you want to dig it up, you know, teasing them. And But the more they said that, the more I liked the idea. So we agreed July 4th, 2000. That's nearly 25 years later. Let's meet back and dig this up. And to make a long story, I moved and got contacted by some of those kids. And I remember meeting them in a restaurant in Marietta. And I walked in, there were four of them. And I said, oh, my goodness, you guys got old. <laughs> we made plans for it. We dug it up. And of those 25 uh, kids, 21 of them were there. It was a great, great day to share. Oh, how And fun. I had a foundation that had agreed to sponsor a a little dinner the night before, and if I would write something, and I did, and those things carried over in terms of the things that I learned. If I shared the biggest lessons from them, they're as appropriate for today's teachers as they were for me. Now, that's a long-winded answer to share something that was deeply personal, but early on, that was, uh, it was a, just a great event. Well, I'm thinking about how powerful for the kids that you stayed with them over those three years. They one, you knew how to help every one of each one of them. Secondly, they couldn't BS you that at that point you knew them. Oh yeah, <laughs> you spent more time. It was with either them than a very parents. long three years. <laughs> I love it. I love it. In preparing for today, you're the first person I've ever interviewed on the Ed Epley Experience that comes from higher education, and it occurred to me. You know, I was going to ask you about the difference between being a principal and a superintendent. And, and if you want to give a short explanation, you know, I'm, I know you well enough to know you're going to have a, a simple and pithy uh, explanation about the difference between one versus the other. But the second question I want to get to is, why did we ever get to that structure? Why, why did we ever settle on a principal and a superintendent? Why not some other structure? I, I'm, I'm guessing about some of the answers, but I want you to share with, with the audience. Well, I have to tell you, uh, 
people often forget that the reason they caught a principal was because they were the principal teacher. They were both a teacher and administrator in the early okay. days. And then as we got away from the one room school and we began consolidating, then there was an executive head and then that became the superintendent. But you know, it, it's interesting, Ed, I'm going to put a shameless plug in for something that I worked on for three and a half years. I'm going to have a book come out. I'm working with the publisher now on the title, but I can tell you the central thesis of it. It is this, if you can't teach, you can't lead. I'm going to argue that the same qualities that it takes to be an effective teacher are the same qualities it takes to be an effective principal or superintendent or nonprofit head or in the private sector. That's what the book's about. There are some endearing things, enduring things that still matter. It was a different role. It took me a long time to figure this out. I remember a superintendent looking at that first board agenda. I thought, oh my God, do I really want to do this? Until I started looking at the board agendas, well, this is my lesson plan for the school district. And instead of 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds, you know, I'm now teaching and coaching adults who are working with them. But as long as I kept that in my head, that really worked for me. You're listening to the Ed Epley Experience. Email Ed now with your questions for today's guest to podcast at theepleygroup.com. In his book, Let's Be Clear, Six Disciplines of Focused Management Pros, author Ed Epley breaks down key practices of professional management, how to implement them, and why it matters. Purchase your copy on Amazon.com today. Develop your competitive edge for the future while building a sustainable and thriving business. I was involved in in our school district out west of Columbus, not on the board, but worked with the superintendent. And that's actually how I got to really know Bobby was more than anything else was as a result of that activity when he was the vice principal of, of our school district. But I've always kind of felt like that principals were inward looking and the superintendent's job was to be outward looking. The constituents of the superintendent were, for all intents and purposes, the board. Is, is, is that right or not? No, you know, it wasn't for me. I have okay. to tell you what I, what I uh, said to the board. I said, look, I just want you all to know, I work at your pleasure, but I don't work for you. I don't get up in the morning and think, gosh, how can I please a couple of board members today? And, and they would laugh, but it's the truth. I worked on behalf of kids and teachers to make it a system that kids would want to go to, I realized I worked at the pleasure of the board and I engaged the board, but I never felt like I ever worked for them. And if we did good things, they would get the credit for it. And I was very fortunate to work for boards who gave us uh, lots of room and gave me lots of room because I learned a long time ago, you know, there's about the difference between a halo and a noose is about six inches. So it's a, it's a fine line. You, you work with that. But I was very fortunate to work with boards who really cared about the end result. So I, so I never looked like I was working for them. It was on behalf of the community, too. Jim, you never gave them the opportunity to think that, they, that you were working for them. You, you made it clear from the beginning that you were there at their pleasure, but you were not worried about whether or not they were happy. Uh, absolutely. You know, I, you think about most things, and I think this is where, whether it's in the private sector or not, whatever goal you want, it's usually a byproduct of having done things well. 
Somebody asked me about coaching, said, do you want to win? I said, no, just every game I ever coached. Of course I wanted to win, but it wasn't just about winning. I know it sounds trite and worn, but if you do the other kinds of things well, winning is a byproduct of that. If you're in a business and you do the, you communicate well, you market well, you do the things that need to be done well, then if your goal is profit, you'll find those. But if you only talk about profit with people, that, that's a harder conversation. So while it might be focused, I think it's always a byproduct of doing things the way they ought to be done. That sounds very much like a John Wooden philosophy about athletics and, and life, that if you do these fundamental things over and over again, you're going to get rewarded in innumerable ways that, that probably other people would care about. But, but again, it's an outcome. It's not a, a driver as such. I'm going to ask this question because I've always wanted to and, and because I get to host this show, I get to do the things I want to do. So I'm going to ask this question. What are some of the unspoken truths or things that you and your fellow experts in education believe to be true about why do we seem to spend more on education than ever and yet feel like we get less for it? Some people do feel that way. And I understand that because the cost of it has gone up. But the truth of it is we've added a great deal to that. But if I go back to the first part of yours, when I think about the truths, I don't, I don't know if these are true, but Harry Truman had a wonderful line I love. He said, I don't give people hell. I just tell them the truth. And it sounds like hell. So I, I'm going to give you two or three truths that are to me. And I often say uh, school is the opposite for adults and kids. And kids, or kids rather, they get the lesson and the test. Uh, that's not true for adults. You get the test and then the lessons. We're going through a major test right now with this pandemic, but putting it aside, some of the lessons, here's one. Sometimes somebody might say to me, so, oh, poor Bernadine, she's burnout. Well, she's not burnout. She was never lit. The truth of it is enthusiasm does matter. And enthusiasm doesn't always mean talking 800 words a minute. But I mean, kids know whether or not you really enjoy them and want to be there and enjoy what you're doing. And that's true in sales of anything, because I kind of think we're all in sales. It's about as hard to tell sell seventh graders on fractions on a sunny afternoon when it's 90 degrees outside and there's no air as it is uh, selling vacuum cleaners door to door. But it's really hard to do it without enthusiasm. Encouragement. Affirmation matters. I, I thought it was interesting. Several years ago, Oprah Winfrey gave a graduation speech at Harvard. Somebody told me about it. So I, I downloaded it. I read it. She had a great line in there. It was, and I'm paraphrasing. She said she was, she had interviewed by that time some 25,000 people. She said former presidents of the U.S., current president, and some of the worst miscreants God had ever created. But she said, when the camera stopped, they all said the same thing or a variation. She said they would look at me and she goes, was that okay? Did that make sense? Affirmation matters. Now, I'm not talking around, going around giving an M&M to everybody, but feedback is the breakfast of champions. And people need feedback about how they're doing. And it's not just, you know, it, and that you get it regularly. That's why there are many companies have stopped doing annual evaluations. And I say, amen. It'd be like me coaching baseball again. 
and I have a kid who did X, Y, Z, and I wait till the season's over. I say, well, Bobby, you never watched the ball under the glove. Every time you'd pull your head up and say, well, gee, coach, why didn't you tell me it the first time I did it? How come we waited till the season's over? Timely feedback matters to help people, but you care enough about them to do it. Uh, Dale Carnegie in his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, had a human relations principle that said, be hearty in your praise and lavish in your approbation. There were a lot of people who, who took that for butter people up, and that's not at all what it means. Yeah, not at all. And, you know, Lee, I, 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 I tried to use the Lee Iacocca line, which would have been uh, Carnegie, I don't know, 3.0, which was praise in public, criticize in private. When I had something to say, that was direct. I went to the person and I was clear about it. When I had something really good to say, I tried to always write it down, say it out loud. For some people, it's doing it in public and I do whatever those things. But feedback is not one or the other. Feedback is feedback. And I think that's one of those lessons that I think fits in it for any leader role. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If you could wave a magic wand and make changes in what's going on in our colleges and universities to make them more effective, what would it be? I, I think I always come back to relevancy. And that's not to make everything nuts and bolts, but it's also not to make everything theory either. I always remember when, uh, oh, I mean, oh, Terrence Bell. Right. Terrence Bell was Secretary of Education under Reagan, and he came to speak in Ohio. And Terrence Bell had been a high school uh, teacher and principal and superintendent out west and then uh, was in higher ed, eventually made his way to Secretary of Education. And he was speaking to a group of superintendents. And I just loved what he said. He said, you know, he said, when I was uh, a school superintendent, he said, I had endless problems and no solutions. He said, then I became a college professor and I had endless solutions and no problems. <laughs> that somewhere, I love working for the Voinovich School of Public Service because so many of our faculty are really intertwined with the community and what they do. So I think it's to always be, and it's not to make it a, a, a total skill shop, but it's, it's to offer some relevancy. The other thing, there's a study that came out by a group called Strata a couple years ago that said it was almost 50% of the people who have degrees, if they were to go back, would get them in something else. Oh, yeah. Now, I, I don't know. I think, and I don't blame this on colleges. Uh, this is the proverbial us. Helping kids to figure out a little more about who they are so that they don't make those mistakes at such high costs and high payments back. I mean, the average kid still has thirty-five dollars to $40,000 in college debt that they're paying until their mid-30s. And it'd be nice to help them to figure out who they were, et cetera, at a lesser cost earlier. It's a disservice that we let them get into that situation. It really is. And, and, and we all play a role in that, no doubt about it. Yeah. Other than a family member, who's had the most impact in you becoming the leader you are today? I would say several mentors. And I encourage people to go find mentors. Before you sell us on it, tell us about which, I don't, we don't necessarily know to need to know their name, but what did he or she do as a mentor that influenced you in a significant way? Well, as, as an early leader, there was a superintendent who hired me as a middle school principal. Then he made me his assistant superintendent. And I used to tease him. I was his not 
I was not well dressed. <laughs> I was not quiet. I was not as thoughtful as I should be. And he was everything I was not. And he had been superintendent at the time for 16 years. He knew that not only did I need a lot of pruning, but that I also brought some things that he thought were important to the organization. And I learned so much from him. And we worked together as a team of two people that were different in ages and everything else. And then he became county superintendent after having been local superintendent for nearly 20 years. He did that for 10 years. And I followed him again as the county superintendent. And I teased him at the time. I said, you know, I guess I need to know what you're going to do next because apparently I'm going to spend my life following you. <laughs> but he was, he, was, he was worth following because I learned so much in behavior, uh, approaches. All of those things influenced me a great deal. And then when I was at Battelle, I will tell you one of the mentors was the CEO of Battelle. And I'm going to give his name, Carl Court. And Carl was at Battelle for a number of years. And he was another one who was supportive, but whom I learned a lot from. And he took time. I mean, here he is, CEO of the largest not-for-profit in the world. But whenever I needed to reach him, I could. He had talked to me. He had listened. He had offered ideas. Uh, he didn't go around shooting on me. You know, and I still to this day, I don't like shutters. Shutters are the one, you should this, you should that, you should that. No, he, he would help me to frame things, think through and consider. And that's different than shutting on me. I always make that distinction between a coach and a mentor. A coach will give you to-dos. A coach will say, you, you have to do this by this date. If they're, if, if, you know, basically they hold you accountable for doing something. Mentors are really good at holding up the mirror and, make, and making you look at it and say, do you like what you see or not? <laughs> right. You know, and one of the things he told me, and I think him every time I get this inclination, he always assumed positive motivation. Always. Yeah. And I, that, that's a, a wonderful feature. And every time I just want to, you know, wring somebody's neck, I think of him and think, okay, I just need to assume positive motivation here a minute. Yeah. Um, what's the biggest thing business can learn from education? I think, and again, I make this case in the, the book, is that the same things that make teachers effective, for example, people who are able to engage kids. Engaging kids is a proxy for learning in the moment. Leaders in any business need to engage their staff. You want your staff with you. So there are principles of engagement. Engagement is not having a staff meeting and simply telling people things. If you're going to do that, write a memo. I want people engaged so that they're actively engaged and figuring out how to do that. <laughs> so I, I think that's one because engagement both in business, in business, we know it's a proxy for less absenteeism. It's a proxy for productivity. And it's ultimately a, a proxy for profit. Yep. And that's where you want to get. So that's why you want to engage. And that's what, that's what good teachers do. What's the biggest thing that education can learn from business? Step up and take accountability. There is such a uh, sometimes a very destructive part of capitalism because you know how you're doing. I always thought I had it in coaching. You want the ultimate demonstration? It's your team out there. And the more we can do that and feel that real sense of ownership and accountability. Now, the, I, you know, good teachers do that, but I think it's not as transparent. 
And too often we try to, to get it down to a few things because it is complex. But I do think there's a real accountability in business that's unrelenting. It's clear. It's transparent. And how do we take some of those features and add accountability to schools in a way that's not Mickey Mouse? And also not unintentionally destructive not unintentionally creating more collateral damage than the benefit it would provide. Exactly. Well, our time has gone fast, which is a good sign for me because it means that that you and I've had a good conversation and hopefully you felt the same way. Jim, one of the things we always promise our listeners is if they listen long enough, we're going to give them one proven idea that will help them run a more sustainable and successful business. And that could be if they're the owner or a president or even a, just a, an executive or manager within it. If there's only one thing that you could share with our audience that you think if you only can do this one thing, what would that one thing be? Okay. This is, this is a bit of a big one, but I want, I want to say this because I think they'll remember it. There's a wonderful writer, David Brooks. And in a book about character, he talked about the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. When I read obituaries, I read them with this prism. Now, I don't know whether I read them because I'm Irish and these are the sports pages for Irish, but I read them. <laughs> but I can always see this, what his distinction. Resume virtues are he or she was chair of, led, captain. You know, there, there are all kinds of things that are that are big achievements that would be on somebody's resume if they're applying for a job. Eulogy virtues are the kind of person you were. He or she lit the room up. He or she uh, was a friend to everyone, would take the shirt. It, it's who you are. Now, I have a bias. My bias is who you are. And I thought about, I'm going to finish with a quote in, in a book uh, by General McChrystal. He said, people will forgive you for not being the kind of leader you could have been, but they won't forgive you for not being the kind of leader you claim to be. This is why Ellen DeGeneres is struggling right now. So you have to decide, my lesson is, what do you claim to be? And then be it. So that's it. Because the kind of person you are will determine the culture, the followers, all of that. It's not a strategy. It's a you. Love it. Love it, Jim. If people want to reach you, what's the best way for them to reach, reach out to you? jmahoney.59 at gmail.com or I've got a website, Red Brick Hill. And if you go to Jim W. Mahoney, you get to Red Brick Hill or Red Brick Hill and you can get my, if you want my monthly book notes, there's no cost for anything there. I know I have to be the only guy that still sends his English teacher book reports I do every month that help people glean some ideas they might use because it's still fun to learn. And yes, my English teacher is still living and we're still good friends. (laughs) He's Jim Mahoney. He's Dr. Jim Mahoney. He's got a book coming out. What, September? When's it, when's it coming? Well, we help, we're trying to figure out what would be the best time for it, but uh, late this fall or early in the year. All right. If you can't teach, you can't lead. And boy, I love the name of that. You've been such a pleasure to have on the Ed Epley Experience, Jim. Thanks for being our guest. Hey, Ed, thank you very, very much. All right. Bye now. Thank you for listening to the Ed Epley Experience. For more information on building a more sustainable, smarter, and healthier business, visit www.theepleygroup.com for resources, tips, and Ed's latest blogs. That's the 
eppleygroup.com. Plus, take a free assessment at theepleygroup.com slash assessment to find out how you measure up as a highly skilled and accomplished manager and where to focus on improving your skills. 